In this week's episode, we discuss New Jersey naloxone distribution, battles against tobacco, and fraud settlements. Let's wrap things up. This is episode 101 for the week of September 6th. I'm Matt Moneypenny. And I'm Albert Battistelli. Before we get started, our diagnosis code of the week is W09.2XXA, or fall on or from Jungle Gym initial encounter. So it, you fall on a jungle gym? That makes sense. But fall from a jungle gym? Where are you Where are you falling to if you fall from a jungle gym? I, I The ground, I assume. I don't know. <laughs> just, I'm going to jump off the jungle gym onto... Right. This unnecessary, I don't know what that is. I honestly think fall on is more confusing because it feels like, what, did you jump out of an airplane and land on a jungle gym? Well, like, if fall out like... of a tree and land on a jungle gym? <laughs> I, I fell onto it. <laughs> <laughs> is it the roof of the jungle gym? Is it the floor of the jungle gym? Right, Is right. it the walls of the jungle gym? I think fall on might be like, you know, if you're climbing rope in gym yeah. class and then you fall from there. Mm-hmm. I get but, it. Oh, see, then I used on and from in the same sentence. So maybe I just made sense of this whole thing in that last sentence I just said. Mm. Mm. You know, mm. Albert, I don't know. Things I don't know. Wild, wild times. Right. Jungle gyms, initial encounters, falls. <laughs> and it falls. Who knows? Pure chaos. <laughs> All right. Let's get into the news. First up, we have administration expands naloxone distribution. The New Jersey Department of Health signed two standing orders to drastically expand access to naloxone, the life-saving medication used to reverse an opioid overdose. They also launched the New Jersey Overdose Data Dashboard, which displays information about naloxone administrations, substance use treatment admissions, viral hepatitis cases, opioid prescriptions, and drug-related hospital visits. Public health professionals, law enforcement, researchers, journalists, and other community members will be able to use the data to inform their opioid response strategies conduct research, and apply for future grants. So this is an update um, that, that kind of comes into what we talked about a few episodes ago about naloxone, which is a drug that's supposed to help with opioids. Um, you know, as an update to this story, manufacturing issue happened in Pfizer and halted their production of the single-dose injectable naloxone in April, which is kind of what I'm alluding to here. Pfizer said it may take until February before it can meet the demand again. Without supply, organizations must weigh in which facilities will no longer stock the antidote, mm. which is scary. That is kind of scary. So there's a supply chain issue. I didn't know that, you know, other than the vaccine for COVID, I didn't know that there was like supply chain issues for any kind of prescription drug or right. any drug in general. But I mean, could you imagine if there was like a, uh, a, a supply chain issue with something like um, insulin? No, exactly. Yeah. Something like a sort of a life saving or a, I don't know, life preserving type of yeah, drug. Yeah, life preserving. Right. Because Nox. Life saving is one thing. Right. Naloxone similar to that, though. I mean, people who depend mm -hmm. on that or who need that in order to either what curb addiction impulses or whatever, like that's, that mm -hmm. could be dangerous to not have that for a little while or to have it be harder to get because might be easier to just go out and i don't know find some heroin or something yeah exactly so hopefully they might be able to speed this up so that people can get their lives saved it doesn't seem like it but you know right. crossing my fingers um but you know it looks like new jersey is, is starting to get ahead of of the curb because they've got some time before they can actually get naloxone if if the supply chain is as bad as it as it sounds 
Um, so hopefully, you know, they're getting ahead of the curve and they can kind of get this ready to go once it's once it's able to be more distributed. Yeah, absolutely. All right. California's battle against tobacco. The UC Davis Center for Healthcare Policy and Research, CHRP, has received a $7.5 million five-year grant that will allow them to lead a program that provides intensive training and technical assistance on smoking cessation in California. This program is called the Healthy Living Clinic Initiative, or HLCI. The HLCI will enable community clinics to follow proven quality improvement methods to increase the effectiveness of tobacco cessation efforts. This will allow for better assessment of population health metrics, such as smoking prevalence among the clinic's patients, referral rates, counseling utilization rates, and quit rates. Uh, Their team will use a novel whole health approach to support smoking patients, providing them with guidance on diet, physical activity, and stress management. Interesting approach. I mean, $7.5 million five-year grant, that's pretty substantial, especially for something that just seems like it's a more of an assistance program more than anything else. Right. Um, so a lot of money to deal with this. So hopefully with the money, they can actually make something happen. Sometimes healthcare organizations will, will get grants and then find out that either it's not enough money or they don't have enough bandwidth to actually make it work. Right. Um, it's interesting too, because they talk about like tobacco use. Is that specific, um, in regards to like smoking cigarettes or is I was thinking the same thing. Are they talking about like vaping or like jewel or any of those sort of yeah um yeah i was know, thinking the, along the same lines hopefully it's about uh vaping because yeah i think generation z is like the first generation that has is like really big smokers since like the baby boomers so there's like a two generation gap in between yes. baby boomers smoking and gen z smoking and they smoke around the same amount uh-huh. and what's crazy with vaping is people don't realize how much they're smoking in a day because you're just hitting the one little pod. Right. And the pod is worth like probably a pack or two. And then right. smoking a pod a day. That's like insane. Yeah. It's and a lot. They don't know much about it still. Right. Right. For sure. And so, yeah, hopefully this, uh, this will help prevent some of that or at least like get to a, the root causes of it. I do like that they included stress management. I feel like the world is mm-hmm. pretty stressful, especially the last year and a half. I feel like yeah. maybe people who didn't smoke took up smoking. Because the stress of of COVID and uh, politics, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So hopefully this, uh, I don't know, this can help curb some of those habits that might have been picked up yeah. as a hopefully. result of, of poor stress management. Well, if you're a smoker in the area of UC Davis Center for Healthcare, make sure to, uh, you know, ask about this initiative, the Healthy Living Clinic Initiative. Anyways, next up, Medicare Fraud Settlement. A major California-based medical provider has agreed to pay a total of $90 million to settle allegations of Medicare fraud. Sacramento-based Sutter Health, Northern California's largest hospital system, got inflated payments because it said people in its Medicare Advantage plans were sicker than they actually were. The officials in the investigation said that the federal program makes larger payments for patients with more severe diagnoses. Moreover, Sutter didn't do enough to correct the problem once it became aware that it had been submitting unsupported diagnosis codes. Sutter said it paid $30 million to partly resolve the claims in 2019 and will not pay the additional $60 million to fully resolve the lawsuit without admitting liability. The total includes $60 million in restitution for the amount alleged to have been defrauded and $30 million in penalties. 
Whoa. Yeah, that's a lot. So this seems like this was already a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. They already paid $30 million to partly resolve the claims two years ago in 2019. And now they have to pay $60 million in restitution, but it doesn't sound like they want to pay the the $60 million in restitution, which I wouldn't either, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, no, I guess you wouldn't. It sounds like... They're defrauding the government, right? They're so yeah. The, so it's a Medicare fraud. So yeah, yeah. It seems like they were miscoding, um, and I don't know if it purposely. was purposely. It sounds yeah. like it was purposeful and right. from the from the guise of this story that we're reading off of. It make it it makes it seem like that Sutter Health was like, yeah, let's fraud Medicare, which is possible, but it's also possible that they didn't know, which is right. you know. That happens all the time. Either way, Medicare fraud happens a lot, especially with coding and billing errors. Right. In this instance, it's a coding error because of the diagnosis codes that people were using. Um, but it comes down to it's it's this this healthcare in general is so complex that it's almost impossible to not have some sort of fraud happen. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, you know, if if Sutter Health knew of this, shame on them. Right, because that's government money. That's tax money. That's that's people, everyday right. citizens, paying for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if not, then it seems like they need to have a better uh, auditing process. I think they probably need a better auditing process, regardless of which. It, yeah, just, I think this would under. reveal something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe our processes so, aren't working if we're paying ninety million dollars. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> bad. Used news. to fraud dollars for one. Not just that. A few mistakes. But the PR on that, like. Whenever yeah. you see fraud in a headline related to your organization, that's that's not good either. So no, no, not at all. Definitely, you're going to want to re-examine some of that. Yeah, I don't know how many people or how many patients claims were that were involved with this situation. Yeah, but it had to have been a lot if it's right. this much money. Yeah. With that, let's go on to our next segment. Welcome to Breach Control. We talk about the latest breaches all across the world. Albert, take it away. All right. This is an update on a story that we talked about previously. T-Mobile calls data breach humbling. A recent T-Mobile data breach coughed up the information of more than 50 million people, including some who aren't current customers or never even were. The hacker responsible for the attack already did an interview with the Wall Street Journal, calling its security, quote, awful. And now CEO Mike Savert is speaking out. The CEO said that keeping customers' data safe is taken very seriously. He also said that it's a top priority. However, T-Mobile has had at least five breaches since 2018. That includes this one, two in 2020, and one each in 2018 and 2019. To do something about it, T-Mobile is partnering with cybersecurity firm Mandiant and consultants at KPMG to tighten things up. Wow. So (laughs) the CEO... Finally, it seems like the CEO of T-Mobile was, you know, called out enough where he was like, all right, I'm going to say something. And he goes, this is a humbling experience. Right. uh, (laughs) I don't know if humbling was the right right word for that. Right. Um, Especially after 50 million people were breached and you've had a breach for the past four years. Right. Not to mention you've had you have the hacker out there like doing a media circuit. I mean, I'm like, yeah, these guys have terrible security. Media circuit. He's like he's torn the the United States. He's right. On, you know, just bad mouth in your security. And, right. He's on Jimmy Fallon talking he's about like how a bad celebrity. Right. 
Jeez. I mean, what a PR disaster. It seems yeah. like they need to overhaul the PR and they over need to overhaul their security and they need to tell their CEO to never say something like that ever again. <laughs> right. That just seems like a bad look. Yeah, it's a bad look all around. Not not great, T-Mobile. Get it together. Uh, hopefully. Hopefully uh, the data that was leaked, I don't remember it at the, off the top of my head, but the data that was like, hopefully it wasn't too terrible. And if I, you know, it's kind of coming back to me. I don't think it was that crazy, but I did think it had payment information involved, which if it ever has payment information involved, you know, it's pretty bad news. So right. it does seem like it was actually pretty bad. <laughs> next up, due page was due next, apparently. The DuPage Medical Group, also known as DMG, is notifying patients about a data breach on its security. DMG experienced an issue last month that caused a disruption to its network systems. Through an investigation, it was determined that the network outage was caused by unauthorized people who gained access to the DMG network. Officials found out later that certain files that contained patient information had been impacted by this incident. DMG is in the process of mailing letters to people whose information may have been involved. So DMG, they responded the right way um, in terms of yep. they, they let officials know, they let the media know, and they're letting the people who were involved know. Hopefully they have the right addresses of these patients who are being involved. And if they don't, hopefully they can, you know, notify them via their website or send them an email or something because that could be a whole nother mess if they don't do right. it the right way. Absolutely. Um, it doesn't doesn't say how many people were impacted in this, no. um, which means that they're still trying to figure it out. It seems like DuPage Medical Group might have not taken this attack as seriously at first and then realized that it was bad. And they were like, oh, oh, no, we got to we got something on our hands, folks. We got to talk about this. <laughs> yeah. All right. Bangkok Airways apologizes for passport info breach. Bangkok Airways has publicly apologized for a data breach in which the passport information and other personally identifiable data were leaked. They stated that the breach was discovered on August 23rd. The airline has not released any information regarding what time frame the data came from or how many customers were involved in the breach. They did confirm that the names, genders, phone numbers, contact information, email addresses, partial credit card information, and more were accessed. Bangkok Airways is still conducting an investigation into the attack to understand the full effects. The airline also stated that it was working on strengthening its IT system and identifying potential victims. So it seems here like they are still trying to sort of get their head around what happened. Not mm -hmm. too much information yet. Uh, not quite sure who was, uh, whose data was uh, leaked or who was affected by this, but it does seem like they're taking the steps to try yeah. to confirm all of that. Yep. They're still in the midst, if mm. you will, mm. of trying to figure everything out. In the thick uh, of the investigation. Know. Yeah, into the thick of it. Uh, <laughs> Can I, I sing that on cool. here? Is that am I gonna are yeah. we gonna get demonetized? The backyardigans are gonna come. <laughs> I don't know how many people fly on Bangkok Airways. I don't think I've ever I didn't even know that Bangkok had an airways called Bangkok. No. Airways. Yeah. Same. Let me see how big they are. I don't know. 36 yeah. aircraft. Okay. Well, that's Average not... fleet age is 11 years. So okay. we're talking about older planes here. Um, employs 3,000 people. So that's good. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. So they are a pretty big airline. Um, 
hopefully it's not that many people that are breached right credit card information this is like standard protocol here names genders phone numbers contact right. information addresses credit card information and more so i don't know what the more is but oh boy um also partial credit card information hopefully bangkok has something like pci in place where the credit card information that's given out isn't that right isn't that sensitive maybe it's only a few digits but yeah everything's encrypted but the end or something yeah the thing is with this is hopefully i mean it's still bad because what they can do with this information is they can call the credit card company and say hey i'm so and so blah 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 i need this information and they can kind of verify that they are who they say they are even though they aren't who they say they are and get the information that way so hopefully the credit card companies are good yeah, a lot of places only ask the last four of the credit card sometimes. So that's true. You can so get a, hopefully, you get a hold of that, you can access a lot. Yeah, and phishing attempts, of course, with email addresses. So if you've flown mm. Bangkok Airways within the past few years, stay alert. Yeah. And that's it for this week's wrap up of your weekly healthcare news. I'm Matt Moneypenny, and I'm Albert Battistelli, and we'll see you next week.